I'm going to go ahead and just ask Kevin and Claire both to come and uh, just tell their story. Just tell it like it is and as it was and what happened and what the Lord did for you. Come on ahead. Hello everybody, um, good evening. My name's Claire, um, Claire Cowdery, but I was Claire Moore before I got married. So this is my dad, um, Pastor Moore. So I've tried to keep it in, in one, one succinct paragraph, but it's very difficult, isn't it? Because life kind of goes like this. Um, okay, so I was born into a Christian home. My dad was a, or is a pastor, was a pastor then also. Um, and so from the very, you know, from birth, our life centered around church and around services and around ministries and all those things that come with um, a busy Christian household. Um, I didn't see it as a blessing at the time and probably wouldn't have seen it as a blessing for maybe the next 20 years or so. But looking back, I know that it was um, a privilege and a blessing to be born into a Christian home. Uh, I made a profession of faith at a young age. So at a very young age, I knew that Jesus had died for my sins. I knew that um, if I wanted to go to heaven, that you had to put your trust in him. And, and so I, I made that decision. But again, it wouldn't be probably for another 15 years before um, the Lord really started to, to do a work in my heart and in my life. So as you do, you just get on with life, don't you? When you're a kid, you go to school, you come home, you get your dinner and, and so forth. And, and that's how life went on um, until I hit secondary school age. So secondary school was a whole new world of opportunity for me. It was all these new people, all these new places, all these new experiences. Um, and I wouldn't say that they were all um, troublesome, but I would suggest the majority of them were. Um, and so that was really my opportunity to kind of break away from the constraints that I felt that I had because my dad was, was a minister. Um, I always had this very intense feeling of wanting to fit in. I wanted to fit in with the crowd. I wanted to be in with my mates and, you know, I wanted to have that life. And I never felt that I had that. And I blamed it all on my poor dad. So I took a lot of stick from my dad in terms of what he did for a living. And, you know, when my friends would see his car coming, that was called the church mobile. And, you know, there was all this stuff that I used to just take endless stick for. Um, so he got, he got the, the brunt of my blame for that. And I guess that was my real excuse, really, for pushing that to, to the one side and saying, actually, that's not, that's not for me. Um, so through, really from the very beginning of secondary school through, I made the, the decision, and it was a decision, to distance myself from God, to distance myself from church, to distance myself from anything that would be connected to anything that would even slightly look like that or resemble that. Uh, and I developed an intensely rebellious attitude. So again, you know, you see my dad's white hair there, and I would suggest a grand portion of that is uh, from my teenage years. Um, because through my teen years, my friendships, my relationships, my behaviour, my decisions, my choices really only worsened. Um, and really from the age of 13 up, I would say, they, they just got worse and worse. Um, and it took, I took a lot of pleasure in aggravating my dad. 
And if he was to say, don't do it, I would immediately put it to the top of the list of to-dos because that was just how I wanted to roll. Um, so yeah, there was a constant battle um, between me and my parents in terms of the way they wanted me to live and the way I wanted to live. Um, and really, as my teenage years went on, I got involved in drugs, I got involved in alcohol, I got involved in you know, the pubs and the clubs and the boyfriends and all the rest of it. And, and quite a bit of risk-taking behaviour, um, I would suggest. At the time, I didn't really care and I didn't really um, cast any weight to the fact that throughout that period of time, um, I was doing a lot of damage, both in my home and in my church, um, damage to my dad's reputation, damage to the reputation of the church, damage to my rep reputation in front of God. But I really didn't care. It was all about me and it was all about you know, what I wanted to do and that was, that was the only thing that factored. Um, such was my behaviour and such was uh, my parents just absolutely, what can we do with this child apart from put her up for adoption. Um, at about age 15, 16, they decided that we were going to move out because at that point we were living in Belfast, in, in North Belfast. Um, and they made the decision we were going to move from there, we were going to move to Ballyclare, which is obviously not too far away from Belfast, but far enough that you couldn't walk it. And so their hope was that, you know, a fresh start, you know, get her out of the way, get her into, you know, a different circle, and then be, and that'll make the difference. Um, but I think that just made me more determined to do what I wanted to do. So for the next lot of years, again, I just went in and out of Belfast. Um, I learned to drive or my, my mates would drive so they would get me in and out or whatever it would be but I was determined to do what I wanted to do um, and one of the things that I always made a very concentrated effort in was um, choosing a boyfriend so a boyfriend to me had to be the epitome of what my dad would not want me to have as a boyfriend um, and so I would actively look for guys who were potentially had a bit of a bad rap, um, you know, they had a bit of street cred, uh, they might have had a, a negative reputation, not negative, a powerful reputation locally, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, nice car, a bit of money, you know, that, that was my kind of tick list. So when I was 19, um, I met a guy who ticked all of the boxes. And <laughs> he did have a bad reputation in terms of, you know, locally, he was quite a, a well-known guy. Um, he, he had the nice car, he had the friends, he had, you know, if you walked into a place, everybody knew who he was and nobody would mess with you because that was your boyfriend. And, you know, that was, that was kind of right up my street. And for a while, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, and I, I really relished in that kind of lifestyle. Uh, my mum and dad were heartbroken because they also could see what kind of chap um, Kevin was. But again, when you're 19 and you're an adult and you make your own decisions, you know, they, they couldn't do anything about it. So our relationship went on and got more serious with, with time and we began to become more committed uh, to one another. Um, but it was only once we started to really spend probably the majority of our time together that I started to see the extent of his lifestyle and the extent of the things that he was involved in. Um, 
But again, by that time, you know, we were we were we'd been together a good while. I really loved him, and I didn't want to, to split from him. So we we just carried on. In 2004, I moved to England, and that was to start my uni degree. Uh, so over the next 12 months, Kevin and I would kind of take it turn about. So he would come over one month to England, and I would go over to Northern Ireland the next, and we would kind of roll it that way. And at the end of my first year in uni, I returned back to Ballyclare for the summer and moved in with Kevin. Um, at that point, mum and dad had moved over to Stoke-on-Trent, so they were no longer there. So uh, I moved in with Kevin and uh, set up home for, for what I thought would just be the summer before I would go back to uni in the September. And again, it didn't take long really for me to see the not-so-fun side of things. Of, of being in a relationship with someone who um, had quite a serious, um, a serious lifestyle, shall I say. But again, by that time I loved him and I didn't want it to separate, so I kind of just tolerated. You know, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to wake up in the middle of the night and he'd be gone and I wouldn't know where he was. And then I maybe wouldn't see him for two or three nights. And if I wanted a hold of him, I'd maybe have to ring the pub and say, is he there? And then I could either hear Kevin in the background whisper, no, or he'd say, yeah, who's here? And he would hand the phone over. So we kind of lived, lived like that for a while. And it was, it, the shine of that lifestyle wore off quite quickly, I would say. And things got to get really, really hard. So the harder, the more invested he got in, in his, um, his lifestyle, the worse our life became and the worse our relationship became. Um, and it, it got to the point where both of us, I would say, were, had quite a really low level of mental health. Um, drugs and alcohol, that's where all the money went, um, majority of the money. Uh, we were struggling to pay our bills. Um, and so life really became rubbish. It came, became rubbish. That summer, we also got some really devastating news that my auntie Sandra, so my mum's sister, had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and that she didn't have very long left um, to live really at all. And my auntie Sandra, if you'd have known her, she was the most straight-talking woman you could ever meet. She wasn't worried about your feelings. She wasn't worried about you know, what you thought of her. She would just say, tell you what, what, it was, what, what she thought. And so when I look back through you know, all these troublesome years and... She never made it a secret. She was a very godly woman. She never made it a secret um, of her thoughts, of what my lifestyle and the, ch the choices that I was making. But she never made me feel less loved. So as she quickly deteriorated, um, I started to see this real disparity between my life and her life. My life was a mess. All these decisions I'd made, all these choices I'd made, um, this real sense of I know what's right for me had just gotten me into a pickle, a real mess. And yet here was my Auntie Sandra, who was only 40. You know, she had a whole life ahead of her. And yet she never once... Um, wavered. She never once wavered. She would never, you'd never catch her crying, why me? Why is this, is this so unfair? Um, she was just so at peace with it. And she kept saying things to me like, 
know, if this, if this is God's plan for me, then this is God's plan for me, and that's okay, you know, I'm going to heaven, what are you so sad about? You know, she, she was G-ing me on, but I was trying to cheer, G her on very unsuccessfully. But that real difference started to speak to me, and it started to show me that actually this whole time that I'd been trying to build my own nest and build a life that I wanted um, was just empty. It was empty and it was worthless. So Sandra died um, in the October of that year. So she, she was only diagnosed in the summer. So when she was diagnosed, I made the decision to take a gap year from university um, because my auntie Sandra lived with my grandmother and we knew that my auntie Sandra was going to die. And so I thought I'll stay a year just to support my grandmother and um, you know just remain a bit close to her for that period of time. So after Sandra died, things in mine and Kevin's life just got even worse, if that was possible, it got even worse. Um, I think one of the lowest points was when I developed Bell's palsy quite soon after my auntie died. And they said it was stress-related, but I just woke up one morning and half my face was paralysed. Um, and I didn't realise at the time just, you know, how, how much evidence that was of the inner stress that I was really feeling at the time, but that's how my body um, brought it out. So it was heartbroken, it was absolutely heartbroken about my auntie and, you know, watching my, my granny on her own and it was just dreadful. And my granny would say to me every Sunday, will you not come to church? And I go, no, nanny, I'm not coming, I'm not coming. I'm steaming up here. No, nanny, I'm not coming. But she would ask me every week, every week. And at that time, obviously my dad had moved to Stoke, where he was in England, so he was no longer the pastor. And sometimes it's quite hard having your dad as a pastor because, you know, he's your dad. And, you, you, you know, that, that made it quite an enmeshed relationship, you know. But at that time, there was a really, uh, he was such a sweet man, Pastor Ray was the pastor of my granny's church. And he would come and he would visit my granny and while he was there, he would chat with me. And he always just had the most tender heart. You know, he was just so, so lovely. So once, one Sunday, my nanny says, will you not come to church? And I said, all right, then I'll go. So I went and I think it was a Wednesday, a Wednesday night. So it wasn't a main service. It wasn't a big service. And I was sat at the back and uh, it was just Pastor Ray was preaching and it was just like he was talking to me. It was like there was nobody else in the room. It was just me. And then Pastor Ray almost, it was just like it was just me in the room. And it was just the Lord saying, will you stop? Will you sack it? Will you give it in? Will you give it up? Will you come back? Stop it now. Enough's enough. You know, I've got this. I can, I can make this better. You can't. And so that night I spoke to Pastor Ray and, and again, he was so non-judgmental, so non, you know, he was never, he never made you feel anything other than loved. And he, he led me back to the Lord that night. I've no doubt that that profession, when I was a child, was a true profession. Because I never, ever, ever felt that I fitted in with the world, no matter how, how hard I tried. No matter how bad I tried to be to fit in with the next one. I just never felt it. So that, at that point, when I was with Pastor Ray, I, I don't think, I, I'm not saying I got saved that night. I don't think I did get saved that night. I got saved when I was a child. 
but the Lord brought me back that night. And that's when he really made, enabled me to accept what he had to offer and enabled me to give him what I, I could not do myself. So then that left me with a bit of a conundrum, a bit of a quandary. Because now, um, you know, I've made the decision, I'm walking with the Lord, I'm back in church. And then I have this, this boyfriend who I still love, still want to be with. However, his lifestyle was all the more problematic. So every Sunday I would go in church and somebody would give me a wee nudge and go, are you going to get rid of him yet? Are you going to get rid of him? And I was going, no, no, not do it. You know, because in my mind I was thinking, well, you know, I need, I need to give him a chance to, to know the Lord. I need to give him a chance to get saved. So I kind of in my mind gave him a two-year window. And then it was time for me to go back to university. So when I went back to university, Kevin was so embroiled in you know the community issues that were going on at that time that it was really a make or break situation he either he needed to come with me to england or he was going to stay and and suffer the consequences whatever they may be so he moved and i don't know how far you want so i gave him a two-year window and when we moved over to England, um, again, I would, oh, would you not come to church? And I would leave very um, unsubtle tracks around the house and books and the Bible and all the rest of it. And he wouldn't, he was like not bothered. So after, after a period of time, I just really felt the Lord saying, right, you, you've given him the chance. You know, you've done all you can. He doesn't want to do it. I'm not going to force him. You're going to have to, you're going to have to separate and I didn't want to do that. So then that ended up a bit of a battle between me and the Lord for, for a number of months. And then one day in work, I was thinking, no, I've got to. Tonight's the night. Got to. So I'm jeeing myself up all day, all day. And I come in and I sit down. And I say to Kevin, I've got something to tell you. And he says to me, I've got something to tell you. And I said, all right, you go on then first. And he says, I got saved. And that's really where his story picks up. So I shall, um, yeah, I shall move aside and let him tell his bit. Thank you, Claire. I don't know who that fella is she's talking about. I've not, <laughs> not the clue. Uh, but that's true. You know, if I was to walk in the door of my old self now, I, I wouldn't recognize myself. I, I promise you that. I, I was a wretch. Boy, oh boy, I was a wretch. Um, so I'll start my story really and, and to say and Claire grew up in a Christian home I didn't grow up in a Christian home I grew up in a very divided home uh, my mother uh, leant towards things of the church but my father uh, wasn't interested at all uh, somebody commented they were expecting an English voice this morning um, but I'm not English but my father was so my father was in the army and he served in Northern Ireland where he met my mother and um, he had went around the world with the army, uh, came out of the army, got a bit disillusioned with the politics and, and so forth. And um, he's from Cambridge. Uh, and he moved back to home, took my mother with him, and tried to work in Civvy Street, as they say. Couldn't, couldn't get on with it. And my mother was homesick for God's country. So um, they moved back. And at that time, the police force in England had a height restriction 
So you couldn't, you had to be over a certain height to, to join. I can't, I don't know what exact height it was, but my father was just a little bit lower, so he couldn't join the police in England, but he could join the uh, RUC reserves because they did away with the, the height limit. So they came to Northern Ireland, um, and that's where I, I grew up. And my father today, this day, still in uh, in Ballyclare. So I spent most of my time in Ballyclare, uh, County Antrim, and then towards uh, my teenage years up in Rathcoole, uh, and on the housing estate there. So, as I said, I grew up in a divided home. So my mother wanted to go to church. My father had no interest. So what happened was, as a, as a youngster, I uh, attended uh, the church, went to Sunday school, uh, I did BB, just really to play football, if I'm honest. But when I got to about seven, eight, nine, started to have a little bit of independence, I would see my father at home and say, I don't want to go. You know, Dad's at home. I want to be at home. And that was kind of the end of any church contact for me at, at that age. So things, things went on. And um, I, you know, was doing okay in school, primary school, went into uh, the grammar school in Ballyclare there and was doing okay in, in the first year but then started to fall into the influences you know um, of, of, of drink and drugs and all that sort of stuff but at an early age um, some of my friends I used to hang about with our older brothers and they introduced me to this stuff at a very early age so 12, 13 I was drinking, smoking, doing cannabis that sort of stuff but you know, at that point, I guess I talked about this this morning, you know, I was heading in a direction, but it hadn't manifested itself in any major way. And uh, I was about 16, I think, something like that. I got serious with a girl. And uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, this, uh, this girl's uh, family was heavily involved in the paramilitary lifestyle. You know, generationally had been involved in it. And her brothers were, were uh, involved in that kind of led me towards that lifestyle. You know, you marry that with the, the drink, the drugs, and, and the kind of partying lifestyle. And then, you know, this allure that these men had because of the, the, you know, the kind of aura that was about them. You know, as Claire said, she was attracted to that type of stuff. So, you know, as a young person, that was attractive to, to, to me. And I got involved with these guys. I don't know if you uh, remember uh, John Gregg who uh, tried to assassinate Jerry Adams. He was, he was murdered um, by Johnny Adair, if you remember, coming back from a Rangers football game. Uh, it was that group that I was involved with, very, you know, very serious uh, criminals. And so I started to kind of court that lifestyle and at the same time was, you know, just living a party lifestyle. But it, it, although it was bad, it wasn't substantially visibly bad in terms of the spiral that my life was in at that point but when I was 17 my mother passed away from cancer she uh, got pancreatic cancer and within three months of diagnosis she was gone and you know and, and my life was already going down a path and that just put petrol in the fire like I mean like you wouldn't believe you know I was turning into an angry young man but that just took it to another level and of course with that inner anguish and pain that I had no mechanism to deal with you know I had no uh, vehicle to go to, to God in this at all I, I didn't have a relationship with him um, I had nowhere to go other than to the dark side 
and and I just threw myself at this paramilitary group and really lived a, a, a life of trying to patch over the heartache and the pain and try and fill it with other stuff and, and to my shame I, I filled that with violence. Um, for me it was, you know, if, if I could make other people hurt then I wasn't hurting. If I could go out and mask it with drink and drugs it would, you know, take it away but it was just a, a, a vain attempt to try and fill a void that I now know could only ever be filled by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, I was in a, in a, in a mess and, and, and was getting up to all sorts. Um, you know, I was roasted a senior position. So I was, you know, wreaking havoc on, on people's lives, my own life, people around me. Um, I was destroying other people's lives. Um, I didn't care. I'm one of four. Uh, I have two brothers and a sister, and they're all younger than me. So I was <coughs> 17 when my mother passed. My my the next one down, my brother is seven years younger than me, so he was only 10. Um, my sister was another two years younger, so she was eight, and my youngest brother, two years down, was six. And so there's a there was a little bit of a gap, and and. And I, I just, I left the house home when I was 16, went into the world and just didn't care. And really I let them down, you know, I've said this to them, I, I, I wasn't there for them at all. I only cared about myself. I really absolutely only cared about myself. I just didn't care about anything. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't care about, you know, whether uh, I had money in the bank or, you know, preparing for the future or whatever it may be. I literally just was on a, on, a, on a death spiral and um, you know this this was life this was normality and, and I think unless you've lived that lifestyle you know you think about it and I look at it now and go Could, can you not see how um, you know how bad the lifestyle was or how harming the lifestyle was but when you live that it's your normality and you can't see the wood for the trees and you can't see the hurt of others. You can't see what you're doing. You can't see how you're, you're you know, you're destroying other people's lives. And 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 I, I've done that again, you know. So I'm in this place where, honestly, I'm just not a nice person at all. And um, I go to a wedding of a of a mutual friend of myself and Claire's, and I, I met Claire at a wedding, and. Um, you know, by her own testimony, if she had been living right, she wouldn't have met me, and you know, she certainly would have went went with me or courted me, not not at all. But I met her, and uh, we got together, and she didn't surprise surprise she didn't tell me that her father was a pastor. She didn't put that little information on the sheet. If she had of, I don't think our relationship would have went very far, because see those Christians, see those hypocritical. Christians that think they know it all, get them away from me. And at one point, I thought I could destroy Christianity with just evolution. I was so foolish, honestly. But that's how, how proud I was, puffed up. But you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have got into the relationship if, it, if Claire had told me that. But nevertheless, I found out there were Christians, and, and you know, as Claire has, has mentioned, um, I don't think David particularly liked me. Um, I definitely didn't like him. Still don't, but the Lord is working, <laughs> working, working through that. 
Um, but, you know, and, and again, for, coming from a place where you're, you're full of pride and self, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this stuff, you know, about the unequal yoke and, you know, but I'm taking it personally, right? Like, you know, how dare he? How dare he, you know, think that I'm not good enough, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, we're living this lifestyle. And again, this lifestyle that you're so caught up in, you're taking people down with you. You know, you're just caught up in your sin and you think it's not affecting other people. Mark my words, sin spreads and it affects others. It affects family, it affects friends, it affects relationships. I had Claire and I was dragging her down a path, you know. remember one, one night she uh, gave me a lift. I think our friend was over from university. She gave me a lift to the pub and and uh, discovered, you know, black leather gloves and balaclava in the back of the car. You think, what happens if the police had stopped us there? You know, the drugs that was being pumped around and, and dear knows what else. I remember one night having to um, get my, my youngest brother, who was probably about 12 at the time, 11 at the time, to, to go and lift stuff and move stuff from the house that he shouldn't have been anywhere near. But I didn't care. I didn't care. I, I literally did not care about anything or anyone. And I thought that I could justify that behaviour because I'd been hard done by. You know, my mother was gone. And if God was real, why would he do that? How could he do it? She's the one that went to church. And this is how that God repays her. No, I'm not having any of that. I'll do things my way. You know, at that point, I was determined that my funeral song, because, I, you know, I, I knew that I didn't have a long shelf life the way I was going. And I'd said to my friends that my funeral, I wanted my funeral song to be Frank Sinatra as I did it my way. Just as one last hurrah to say to all those who were gathered, I went out in my terms, this was my life, I did things my way. So it's just the mentality that I had. It was awful. But... So, you know, you've heard Claire's story and how the Lord is, is dealing with her. And, 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 you know, again, I wouldn't say this is the recommended way of courtship and, <laughs> and all that. It's not. But, but God is so gracious, so gracious that with Claire challenging me to look at these things. And I, I really just looked for the first time. I'd never really looked before. That's the problem, you know. That's the problem. Many people say, I don't do that God thing. That's not for me. But most of them haven't really ever looked. Because when you look with an earnest and open heart, God will show himself. He'll show himself. When you look at the word, seeking him, he'll reveal himself. And that's what started to happen. I remember uh, one time I went to uh, a service in Bray Hill. I don't know if Claire remembers this. Um, it was the only one that I went to. I wasn't saved at this point. Um, but... And she was nagging me that much. And I thought, I'll go, I'll go. So the night before, obviously a Saturday night's a busy night in the lifestyle that I led. You know, it's a working weekend, shall we say. And um, I remember, this is, this is how I see the Lord just putting his hand upon these things. That um, I knew I had to go to church the next morning. And I didn't want to be uh, hungover going into church. Just so that people couldn't point a finger and say, see, that's who he is. So I wasn't doing it for anybody other than me, right? But I, I was out and, you know, we, we were out in, in the town and 
I, I left early to go home, went home, and then the next morning I'm in church, and of course I'm in church, so I thought I'd turn my phone off, turn my phone off, and uh, got out of church, put the phone on, bing, 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 message, 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 where are you, where have you been, it kicked off last night, there was, you know, rats in the street, this person's in jail, this person's got lifted, etc., etc., where were you, I'm like, I can't say I, I went home early because I was going to church in the morning. But God had his hand on me even then. Just that little thing, you know, that I, I could have been taken away, carted away. You know, praise God, I, I was involved with the worst criminals that you could imagine. Done some horrendous things. But never got caught, never had a, a criminal record that could have stayed me for life. I do believe that was God's hand on me. So... Claire challenged me, we moved to, to Middlesbrough and um, she made me look, she made me look and you know I was miserable, just miserable, literally miserable as sin, that's, a, that's the best way to describe it. I, I knew that, that I just couldn't go on in the way that I was going, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, I, I honestly, before the Lord is my witness, I can tell you now, if the Lord hadn't saved me, and pulled me out of the Mary Clay and set me upon a rock. I absolutely mean this from the bottom of my heart. I'd either been in jail, I'd have drugged overdose, or I'd have took my own life. I'd have took my own life. I know I would have. I know I would have. But I started to look. I started to look, and, and, and for the first thing I kind of looked at was creation and, and the account that there is another side that. And then I started to look at the evolutionary theory and started to look at it critically and started to realize this is not making sense. And then I started to look at some of the stuff that, you know, Answers in Genesis was doing and and kind of that and and seeing the other side and well, that's credible. That makes sense. And then I started to read John, John's Gospel and uh, just, just was enthralled by it really and got to John 14, 6. And I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And I, I was just under such conviction. And God was showing himself to me. And we were in Middlesbrough at, at the time. And, and Claire was out working, I think. <clears throat> and I got a phone call from one of my friends in Northern Ireland. Who um, was caught up. Alcohol just destroyed his, his, his life. He'd lost his job, his home, his partner, etc. And he, he'd phoned me and he was drunk and he was crying. Uh, you know, about how miserable he was, how broken he was. How that, you know, life was just not worth living. And I can remember saying to him on the phone, uh, you know, you need to look at Jesus. You need Jesus. So I'm saying this stuff as an unsaved man. And as I'm saying it, I really felt the prompting of God, not audible, don't get me wrong here, but just the Holy Spirit, God saying to me, never mind him. What about you, you Muppet? (laughs) You need Jesus, you need me. And I came off that phone call, it was February 2007, come off that phone call and, and just, you know, I didn't really know all the ins and outs of it. Honestly, I didn't. All I knew was, and I needed the Lord to save me, and I asked him to save me. You know, we hear the good news. God never says no. He never says no. He didn't say to me, do you know what, Kevin? 
I've watched your life. I've seen what you've done. I've seen who you hurt. You can't be saved. He didn't say that. And he's not saying that tonight to anybody here that maybe is struggling in their sin, struggling with what's next, struggling maybe thinking they're too bad to be saved. Maybe even somebody's here thinking they're too good to need to be saved. But God doesn't say no. He wants us to come. So I came, threw myself at his feet, and he started to change me, to mold me, to shape me, called me to ministry, which Claire was delighted about when she first heard. She always said that she would never marry anybody like her father. That worked out well for her, didn't it? But the Lord saved me, you know, started to, to, to really do a work in my life. Started to, to help me to see that, you know, it, it saved me from such sin that my life was his. I needed to serve him. I needed to give my life to him. So, you know, it, it always was on me that there was more to life than just sitting in a pew. That, that there was a saviour to serve. Uh, this time, you know, the Lord had worked in my life. He, he sought me out. We got out of Northern Ireland. Got out of the paramilitaries. Only by the grace of God that I just was able to walk away without any issues. That was God's grace in that. Got out of the paramilitaries, you know, got a good job, got promoted, became a director of an IT company. I was doing, doing really well in the secular world. But then there was this pull. God was saying, I want you. I want you to serve me. Um, so I, I surrendered to ministry at a, at a men's retreat. Um, phoned my wife that night and said, I've got news for you. I've surrendered to ministry. I went down like a lead balloon and uh, really nearly broke our marriage, if I'm honest. Because Claire had to deal with a lot of things that were troubling her. Uh, but the Lord moved, you know, brought us closer together. Uh, got trained in ministry. At this point, I was still working for an IT company. They'd just gone multi multinational. So the offices in America, I was flying all over the world. And, and uh, I was trying to do Bible college at the same time. I was a deacon in the church. The kids were just young. So I was trying to do all these things and not, not do one thing well. And the one thing well that the Lord had called me to do was, was serve him. But I was trying to race every horse, you know, ride every horse in the race. Because I didn't want to quite let go of my career. I was happy to say goodbye to the paramilitaries and all that. But my career, uh, the family and all that stuff had to balance this. And uh, I was in Bible college came out of Bible college, I had a little wobble in Bible college, if you like, and, and kind of threw the towel in a little bit. At that very point where I had kind of just blown up in terms of trying to do everything and not doing anything well, and I kind of thrown the toys out of the pram when it came to Bible college and teaching. It, uh, and this just shows you how the enemy works. You know, he doesn't let up. We talked about this this morning. But at that very point... The, my, the place that I worked for were, were trying to court me to move to America. They wanted me to come over there and help with the work there. And they flew myself and Claire over to um, look at you know houses in Atlanta and Georgia. Um, you know, just beautiful, really, really ideal kind of family community type place. They wanted to put our kids into Christian College, Greater Atlanta Christian College. They're going to pay for that, like $6,000 a term. They're going to pay for this. 
all the five would move and, and leave behind Bible college and all those things. And um, when I started in the ministry, you know, just looking at training, I remember some, some pastors, older, senior, wise pastors said to me that if you can do anything else in life, do it. Because the ministry is a hard calling. It's the greatest calling, I believe. It's a privilege, but it's a hard one. And I didn't really know what that meant. If you can do anything else, do it. Well, I thought at the time I heard that. I thought, well, I can do something else. It doesn't make sense. But what happened was this call came to go to America and leave everything behind. And honestly, I believe it was, was the devil taking me to the, the mountaintop and showing me the kingdoms of the world. He said, you can have all this if you bow down to me. And we couldn't do it. It was like, if you were going to write down the ideals of you know, career success, picture postcard lifestyle, that was it. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And we came back and said, you know, I'm leaving work. Left work, finished my Bible college, kind of, just about. Entered in the, my first pastorate in 2016. Did, did six years there. The Lord, Lord blessed. And then ultimately came back to, to Stoke-on-Trent, which where it all began, really. And the Lord has, has blessed in amazing ways. You know, and the decisions, we talked about this, words come up a couple of times. You know, decisions, decisions decisions and the decisions you make can have lasting eternal consequences you know I made a decision in February 2007 to trust the Lord as my saviour and that has eternally blessed me it's temporarily blessed me in this life I have a lovely family two beautiful children most of the time they're beautiful no all the time they're beautiful um, I've been able to lead my brother and my sister to the Lord um, my younger brother in my old lifestyle uh, he followed me into the paramilitaries in my new creation life I was able to lead him to the Lord Jesus Christ um, they have large families and they have homes now that are Christ centred and the Lord has done an amazing work and he still continues to do it but it's based on a decision so my plea my call to you all this evening and I don't know you the Lord knows your hearts. There may be someone here this morning that are far from the Lord, you know, that are saved by grace but have wandered through sin. There may be some here this morning, or this evening, sorry, that don't even know the Lord as Saviour. It's decision time. What are you going to do? Are you going to turn to the one that can bless you above and beyond all measure? Are you going to turn to the one that can save you from your sin? that's willing to forgive you no matter what you've done and welcome you into the family of God to call you his own? Or are you going to continue to make the wrong decision and go your own way? If I hadn't turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, I absolutely believe that I should have a doubt. I probably wouldn't be standing here this evening. That I be awaiting the judgment and wrath of God, destined for hell for an eternity. But God doesn't want that. He wants you to be saved. Today is the day. Now is the time. I plead with you. Make the right decision. Because he'll never let you down. If the old man walked in here, I would never swap what I have now 
for what I was then. Never. God doesn't say no. What a saviour. Amen.